If you could stand with me, we're going to continue in the book of Titus, chapter 2. Be reading the same verses as last week, verses 3 through 5. It reads, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true. I thank you that you've given us all that we need in order to experience true life in you and the godliness that would be an example to others. Pray that you would embolden us, encourage, encourage us in sharing this great news. Um, pray that we would be more firmly rooted in your word. We would continue to, to trust in it and that your spirit would refresh us, would um, ignite us, would strengthen us to live as people in all of your grace, captivated by your grace, moved by your grace, Lord. I pray, God, this morning that as we, we hear from your word, God, that you would use me as a willing vessel, God, um, that you would hide me behind the cross and that your name would be lifted high and that your spirit would teach that which human lips are unable to truly speak well and properly. Um, I pray, God, that you would just give us a, a, a sense of your presence this morning as we explore your word. In Christ's name, amen. Let me see it. <clears throat> so uh, the results of the recent presidential election have sparked nationwide debates spanning many controversial narratives. And one of these narratives considers the value of women in our society. The fact that our president-elect is widely believed to be profoundly misogynistic and yet he was victorious over what would have been our first woman president was for many a crushing blow to women's equality and in commentary on how little progress we have made as a country. Now, I'm not going to offer a political opinion about this, but I want to give a picture of a highly sensitive narrative that is present in our country right now. This is not something we can breeze over. This is very thick, and the tension is very evident. If you've done any historical study of women's suffrage, the Equal Rights Amendment, feminism, and women's liberation You'd understand the baggage informing public opinion. Now, we, however, are informed by the Word of God. And no matter the cultural influences and assaults on biblical foundation, we must cling tightly to Holy Scripture. And many have dismissed these words here in Titus as the exclusive opinions of Paul. I've said that these are not attributed 
to the design of heavenly commentary. And that would be a dangerous assumption. We know Paul's words to be breathed by the Spirit of God, inscribed with the apostolic authority given by Christ himself. In holding fast to these truths and acknowledging that they are in accords with sound doctrine, let's take careful investigation of these words with all humility and reverence. Let us agree with the Apostle Peter when he says that we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So not just opinions from a man. Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit. What comes along with the written words is the full counsel of God, in which we know his attributes, his character, and his intentions. We aren't left with impersonal laws to agree and disagree with based on humanistic whims. We have the authoritative and comprehensive word of God which agrees with heaven and surveys eternity in its presentation. If there is an attack on the scripture, it is to disregard not only these truths, but the author, the perfecter himself. God is good. And we see through his word that his thoughts towards us are of peace, not evil, bringing us to an expected end. Setting all of this up because this is a very controversial text in our culture and society in this country. And I would hope that we, we hold these words very high in high esteem, understanding that God himself is teaching us about who he is, his character, his love, his grace applied to His precious bride. As we examine this text, we see Paul's instruction to the churches in Crete. And we see a a very specific context in terms of society that they're living in. It's helpful to view this text with this Greco-Roman understanding of Crete. And in doing so, we understand that much of what Paul says here appears consistent with the external treatment of women in this society. Historical record indicates that the woman's role was primarily given to her household in Crete at this time. She was to be subservient to her husband and attentive to her children. She was never to exercise authority over a man. You see that on the external level, but it's important to observe the nuances of how this played out. And further investigation, further careful investigation of 
what seemed to be representative externally gives us the sense that women in this society were in no way totally free from nor were they equal to men. They would often be considered the property of men and did not possess equal rights in wealth accumulation, political participation, marriage and divorce, or even education. There were exceptions where women, often via inheritance, whereby they become upper-class citizens, in these societies would obtain economic status and political influence. But still there were virtually no women occupying positions of authority and there were many legal double standards that existed to favor men. In the previous chapter we explored the Judaizers and And understand that even in this context, as Paul addresses Titus and ultimately addresses older and younger women, that the Judaizers carried many of these same false conclusions about equality with women. And it carried on in their teaching as they tried to uphold their version of Moses' law as a basis for piety. So there was a religious connotation in the way that the Judaizers tried to portray this lack of equality with women. So once again, in in view of how culture and society treated women in this external um, picture of their conduct, what Paul teaches here doesn't necessarily make the Christian appear distinct. Scholars contend that that was intentional, what Paul's teaching us here in in not necessarily presenting this external difference in the way that women are instructed. They said that that's an intentional device. The final phrase in this passage, verse 3 through 5, the final phrase of verse 5 gives us a sense of this intention. Paul says that the word of God or the message of God may not be reviled or discredited. Paul was not teaching a practice that was antithetical to society. Cretans were used to this. There was an emphasis toward presenting a sound example, a good and healthy example of what a Christian is to this society that they were in. And we can attest to this application in our own modern society. There's general moral agreement with some of the law of Moses applied to our system of government. Human beings are embedded with a moral conscience to observe what is good and true about our world as a measure of common grace. And to a deeper extent, we can point to specific causes wherein we activate ourselves in society in social activism, where we advocate for moral good, not just as social humanitarians, but as followers of Christ. Our involvement in these issues is gospel-informed, and our efforts are fueled by hearts that have been supernaturally awakened 
and biblically informed. The emphasis is on what God calls good, and we engage as agents of God's goodness. Good begins with God, not culture or society. And in this presentation, this external presentation that seems consistent with society, you see that there's a practice that appears to parallel what Paul's teaching here. It's to say that the practice in and of itself may not be bad. It actually may be a good practice. But what we have is the full counsel of God. We have the intention, the motive, the design, nuances that inform exactly what we're looking at beyond external practice. What we see is Paul acknowledging the good of women caring for their husbands and homes in principle while taking lengths to establish a countercultural purpose in defining what is good. So let's look at this. Get views, get the, the view from Paul's perspective of how the older women should train the younger women. I think, once again, that's a very interesting word to train. There's an emphasis, there's an intention there that older women are actively a part of the younger women's lives, training them in specific ways. The first command here is they should train them to love their husbands. Stop there. This text in the, in the ESV seems to combine in verse 4, love their husbands and children. But the literal translation does not place an and there. It just stops with love your husbands. And we should stop there. We should stop right here. It seems pretty innocuous. Cretan society would agree and This would give a nice public picture of the family and dignity and respect, which is a good thing. However, what Paul's teaching is is not this this idea of just dropping a law in in a person's lap that that contends towards this activity, this relationship between a man and his wife. It's, It's not just, hey, go love your husbands, and there's there's no real framework for what that looks like. What we see here, here in terms of this instruction is not the full scope of what he has taught about love between wives and husbands in other places in Scripture. Now, Titus has traveled with Paul in establishing churches in other areas. So it's likely he has encountered Paul's teaching from Ephesians 5 along the way, where the picture of Christ in the church is to be in full view in keeping this instruction. He's not just dropping love your husbands in their lap without considering what he's already taught about what that looks like. This picture of mutual submission, this honoring of a deeper mystery, Christ and his church. Now, it's interesting in in terms of what Paul's communicating, it's important to establish and what this love looks like. 
um, theologically and to, and to establish the Ephesians 5 context. And there's other places in Scripture, but Ephesians 5 gives us the most explicit and comprehensive view of what this looks like. But on a practical sense, <clears throat> older women teaching young women or training younger women to love their husbands is such a rich backdrop for discipleship. For all the men who have been struggling to listen to this entire section, this is for us. Because I don't know about you, but I'm willing to admit that I need this to be happening. If this was more frequent, we could be looking at a decline of divorces in the church. Now, let me back up and say that this isn't just to say that now I would, in this picture of, of how this works out in the local church, I wouldn't just have this advocate in an older woman who will tell my wife that she's wrong and that gives me a better chance to win our next argument. That's not, that's, that's not what's, what I'm looking for out of this. This is, a, this is more of an impartation of wisdom that helps This younger woman skillfully exercised love in spite of the mess that we truly are. There's a training happening in the way that you you teach a, a younger woman to love this husband who, if I'm speaking for myself, can be quite unlovable at times. You know, I think my marriage is probably the single most sanctifying device in my life where, you know, I may have walked into it to say, yes, I'm this godly man and I, I study the word and I honor the Lord and I seek him with all my heart. And implicitly, I'm thinking I'm this gift to my wife. But in fact, I've discovered how crazy I really am. Just basic Everyday life, I, I, the, the, the conclusions that I come to about how things should be done and how I communicate and the rationale that I apply, I have learned so much in interacting with my wife. And the fact that she would love me and the fact that she would keep her vows in mind in light of what I, uh, what I have been discovering about myself is truly a blessing So I imagine this older woman, having been through years of experience in this regard, training a younger woman and asking some very introspective questions or asking questions that could lend towards introspection. And how do you love your husband in spite of your difficult times together? And how do you handle circumstances where he has flat out failed? And how do you stick with your husband who doesn't seem to be the strong Christian man prototype? And how do you avoid comparisons and unlock the godly confidence your husband needs to lead when he can only get that from you? I imagine the older woman being able to navigate these questions with grace, seasoned with the qualities in verse 3. 
It's very interesting to see that the application is training here. There's a training ground for this. Next is love your children. To instructs them to love their children. Again, this is consistent with the expectations placed on women in this society. And again, this is valuable perspective. Practically more fully explored from the minds and hearts of older women who have much wisdom and counsel to offer. There's a formal discipleship dynamic being explored here, but there's also a relational one. You don't just talk to every woman about your marriage and your kids. So implicit here, there's a relational component that exists. This is intentional design. There's this application of love your children, teaching this to younger women. They understand that there's, there's nothing like a mother's love. There's no other trust, no other affection, no other protective fervor like a mother's. And teaching them this is very, very important. Although this is being <clears throat> directed toward the role of women, this is not to be understood as exclusively a woman's role to love the children. A lazy summation of these instructions would allow one to conclude that this lets the man or the husband off the hook or that it denotes an absence of responsibility for the husband to love the children also. In my house, my mom was the disciplinarian. She was the one who we had to reckon with if we did something wrong. And it automatically kind of put this uh, good guy, bad guy type of dynamic in the home where, you know, if I did something and I knew that I was wrong, I knew it would be punished for my mom, but my dad coming home is this sense of relief where I could run to him and get comfort and tell my side of the story. Didn't know that, you know, adults talk. <laughs> but that's just what I... I thought, I thought that's how it worked. Like, you know, dad, dad will understand. I didn't mean to drive the lawnmower over um, my mom's watch. But, you know, it was, it was clearly something that she should not have freaked out that much about. That's my case. But my dad saw it a little bit differently. And it was, it was interesting at times. I think my dad kind of tried to play that card um, with the whole go ask your mom type of thing. And I would see my mom get frustrated because he knew that me going to ask my mom meant the answer was no. So he could have just told me no. But she got the disciplinarian. She got the bad guy card again. My dad got better at it. And I, I began to to uh, run to my mom rather than ask my dad instead of him sending me to my mom. And there's this balance here. It's a beautiful balance because there's a marriage of responsibility. There's an activity on both ends of the spectrum where husband and wife, mother and father are taking this approach together to love the children. 
I love just this picture here of, of older women training the young, younger women. In this context, we observe that older women must have this reverent sense for what it means to raise small children to their adulthood. They'll likely have perspective of the evolving applications of love for their children, complete with the different milestones and obstacles that they experienced. Trusting the Lord throughout, they would offer young women rich counsel and wisdom. And this is the training application in view. While these uh, first instructions automatically lean towards this cultural expectation, this was an expectation, this, is, this was a, um, a, a, the way that women were considered valuable in society was to be a mother and a wife. We see that the following instructions are not just exclusive to mother and wife. For those who accuse Paul of misogynistic commentary, please consider that his counsel towards single women in 1 Corinthians 7 would have been extremely radical. The fact that he points to the advantages of singleness would have created a cultural chasm between Christianity and conventional thought. Similarly here, his words illustrate the opportunity for all women to be included in sound instruction. He's established last week he's, he's giving presence to women by talking specifically with them directly. He's not talking over them to their husbands and saying, relay this to your women. He's speaking directly to them. In other places in Scripture, Paul has done the same thing. And it's very, very, very important to realize how significant this is. He speaks to what it looks like to be self-controlled and pure. His words here illustrate the opportunity for married women to consider this and for unmarried women to consider this and be included in sound instruction. Specifically, the call to be self-controlled and pure speaks to sexual purity. One commentary writes, as it relates to this specific command, if anything, the challenges that face the single Christian woman and man today are even greater. With greater freedom, mobility, and responsibility, combined with society's indifference to sexual behavior, the temptations have multiplied. Yet God's will has not changed. Purity and self-control must characterize the lifestyle of the single Christian woman. The countercultural message she sends will be received all the more clearly. A word for pure here was used in Greek literature in the same vein as the word chaste, which implies the woman's devotion to Christ or to her husband in Christ. Again, in this specific vein, older women are engaged in a training capacity. 
There's much to learn from an older woman who has lived the life of being flirted with, experiencing real temptation, mistreatment from men over the years, and yet has remained faithful to Christ. Training is a proper application. One of the most controversial parts of this text is the next command, which is uh, working at home. Or as another translation says, fulfilling your duties at home. Controversial maybe for us, but again, in this time, in this area, Crete, it's culturally consistent. Nothing controversial here for them. The application here that we need to see, that we need to, to explore, needs some unpacking. This is not a command to only be a stay-at-home mom. This is not a command prohibiting a woman from pursuing a professional career. There have been contemporary theologians, scholars, and pastors who I believe have used this text as a basis for commentary of a woman's participation in society. So I don't, I don't think that what we're seeing here is, is specifically speaking towards that. This text is not placing boundaries on a woman's pursuit of education and subsequent job qualification in the professional sphere, nor is it providing a basis for denial of equal rights or of leadership roles in the workforce. The emphasis of this text is that the young married woman should consider the conditions of her home with the utmost importance. The emphasis here should be placed on whether or not this young woman is neglecting her home or whether idleness or indifference is a characteristic of how she treats her home. This considers whether or not the husband or her children have a sense for her presence at home. I like how one commentator concludes this phrase, depicting this as, uh, this as a young woman who is a home lover, as her working at home is in accords with her love for what makes a home, not at the least including her husband and her children. This is an invitation to consider God's design of the specific gifts that he gives to women to lavish this love and the care that she has for her home. This is not an impersonal assembly line duty assigned to a lesser gender. It's a specific call to one who is literally created from the piece of an anatomy of a man and one by which new life grows and develops and enters this world. There's a uniquely intricate connection to the home for a woman. And it needs her desperately. God's design calls for it. It's not just some superficial fast track to convenience for men. 
This is a careful exploration of how God himself creates humanity and and for community. All of that said, this does not excuse a man for placing care towards his home. We cannot look at this text as a trap door for our lack of presence. In fact, if you're looking at this text purely in the sense of domestic duties, consider that there are homes where men are the primary cooks, the primary launderers, and the primary caretakers of the children. And the wives bring home the bacon. Consider that reality. And even further, that men may still work full-time, And then still come home and do all of these things as well. Those exist. Those realities exist in our culture, in our our immediate context. And we should consider them in light of what this text is teaching us. This text is dealing with younger women. But I just, I didn't want to give the impression that men have no contribution since they aren't being explicitly addressed here. Men are to be present, to be involved, to be diligent. Men are to serve at home. A more careful exploration of Ephesians 5, I believe, gives us a sense of what that looks like. If there's a literal parallel that Christ gave his life for his church. Gave his life. There is a sense of how a man serves, how a man applies this attitude of self-sacrifice towards his wife, ultimately for the benefit of his home. What is countercultural is this emphasis of guarding against the double standard. This view of women who love their children or workers at home carries this unspoken assumption that they They get off easy, confusing this application of, of, hey, I'm just doing this as my duty. Therefore, we don't really understand what rest looks like for the woman who works or is a lover of home. If we have the framework where we work for most of the day, a, a, a man who goes to work for most of the day, And then our wives are at home with the children for most of the day. A superficial conclusion is that we've been working, you've been resting. But we should consider what Scripture actually says here, which literally says that a young woman should work at home so they're not resting And then we must understand what rest must look like for our wives. Finally, Paul says that these younger women should be kind and submissive, subjected to their husbands. 
kindness is it's an interesting that it's placed just in the middle in the thick of all of this there's a kindness involved in this training mechanism to teach them to be kind and that just kind of spreads out along the lines of all the other things that are being taught here to be submissive and subjected to their husbands again does not give us a sense of cultural disagreement or social disagreement. However, we have a a greater perspective of what this actually means. In view of this command, I I believe it's helpful to refer to the the idea of being a complementarian or the, the theology that's unpacked with being complementarian, which specifically states that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, but different and complementary in function with male headship in the home and in the church. Headship is not a new concept in the New Testament church. And Titus is likely familiar with Paul's teachings on the subject. And here we see the radical difference in the ideology and motivation behind applying this agreeable cultural standard. They may look the same on the outside, but the motivation and the ideology behind it is radically different. We see here that the idea of submission and headship is a higher standard, with its basis being the witness of Jesus Christ himself. Listen to Paul in Philippians 2. Speaking of Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a picture of of Christ's submission to the Father. Equality is present, but but the exercising of headship is to the salvation of all people. Christ's submission to his Father's will in that he gives himself for his church is a notion that should make every husband tremble. The controversy of headship is not worth the struggle. Again, all good things begin with God, not man. This is not an invention of fallen man. And in this, we we must see that the Lord loves women. This Jesus who sits at the head of the husband gives us a living witness of his treatment 
of women when he was on this earth. Now, author Dorothy Sayers, who is a friend of C.S. Lewis, she, she writes this. Perhaps it is no wonder that the woman or that the women were there first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There had never been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, who never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made coarse jokes about them, never treated them as either the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without complaining and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. Although this is a, a training ground for older women towards younger women, This is not a, these verses here don't give us a comprehensive picture of the types of faithful women found in the body of Christ. There are women, faithful women, devoted to the Lord who strategically oversee vital economic decisions, who take on physical tasks that make manly men blush, and also those who are a rock standard of consistency for their families, a sturdy foundation of confidence and strength in spite of life's various circumstances. My explicit proof text is Proverbs 31, widely believed to be an oracle of Solomon's mother. My supporting texts encompass accounts of Hannah, Ruth, Phoebe, Eunice, Priscilla, Miriam, and many more. It's noteworthy that Paul instructs Titus to leave this training to the older women. Doesn't put Titus at the helm of teaching all of these things. Almost as if to say that God has gifted the older women to tell these stories like no one else can. Now, I know we've, we've talked a lot about some things that may have made us uncomfortable. And, and it was, it's very interesting um, in my study of this and thinking through preaching these verses. There's a real uneasiness in teaching about what Scripture helps us see about women. And, and I don't. I don't know where that comes from. I, I think I kind of know. I have a, a sense for that. But in specifically and explicitly teaching about what God says to women, about women, how he beautifies his church because of women, shouldn't be something we should be hands off about or something we should be uncomfortable with. It's, 
to the glory of God, our Father, who is faithful and true. And we remember that God is good. All good begins with him. His design is good. His plans and purposes for women are by design to point us to his faithfulness. I pray that we always start with him. As Paul tells us that our very health is dependent upon it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for your word. We thank you that it literally pierces us to the core, God. It exposes the places where we need to grow and helps us understand more deeply what it means to have a relationship with you. Helps us to understand holiness in its true context of being set apart. Not joining the ideology of secular society and those who distrust what you have given to us in Scripture. I pray, God, that we would continue to learn at your feet, to continue to seek your counsel. I pray, God, that I continue to humble myself before you, God, and your spirit gives wisdom, instruction, understanding. I thank you for your word, God, that doesn't leave us without answers. It doesn't leave us feeling empty toward how we should engage this world around us. I pray that you continue to embolden us, to equip us, help us to enjoy the beauty of family, the beauty of community, God, as you continue to teach us what the local church should look like to the glory of the head of the church, which is Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things, God, and we ask that you continue to be with us. Thank you for Barb Wooler and all she's doing and all you've called her to do. Continue to give her power and wisdom and grace in pursuing all things to glorify your name. Thank you for this church, Cornerstone, that you would continue to beautify your bride, that you'd help us, God, to hold your word high above all other things. In Christ's name, amen.